Welcome to episode 305 of Live Happy Now. We talk a lot about the importance of social connection for maintaining our well-being, but how do you find happiness when you're socially distanced? I'm your host, Paula Phelps, and this week we're looking at how to stay connected even when we're apart. Dr. Jennifer Wegman is a professor in the Department of Health and Wellness Studies at Binghamton University. She teaches classes including stress management and contemporary health issues, and her audiobook, Resilience, How to Master Stress, Reduce Anxiety, and Live Well, provides listeners with a new, informed mindset about stress. She's here today to talk about how we can improve our happiness and our connections while staying safe and healthy. Jen, welcome back to Live Happy Now. Thank you. I'm so excited to be back. This week, we are looking at how we can practice happiness even while we're socially distanced. And, you know, a lot of people right now are facing such a mental health crisis due to COVID. And, you know, what I'm seeing is people want to be safe, but it's our nature to be social, not socially distanced. So first of all, what are you seeing in this realm? Well, especially in the population that I deal with on a regular basis, which is college students, I'm seeing a lot of struggle. And to be honest, there are some populations in college that are really just starting to throw their hands up and say, we need to connect. And if that means that we're not going to social distance, then we're not going to social distance. And then that's translating, and this is across the country too, to increase in cases. So I know that college students are trying to balance being separated from each other and having the natural college experience that most of us who went to college had and trying to be safe. So there's this kind of wax and waning of their ability really to maintain their mental health and maintain social distancing at the same time. I will say though, overall, I am highly impressed with the college population that I'm dealing with anyway because they're really diligent and they're really working hard to do this. But at the same time, as a person who is in the field of health and wellness and who studies stress, I'm really, really innately in tune with the fact that it's causing mental health issues. And I am seeing students with anxiety and depression and loneliness, and they're trying to navigate it. I actually was just talking to a colleague this week about this, I honestly see some of my classes almost turning into group therapy. Really? Yeah. Wait, I'll open up with a question and people are just jumping in like, how are you feeling today? What's going on? And also the nature of a class like stress management really lends itself to this. But students want to talk about it because I think that they're really, it's been a year and they're trying to figure out how to navigate this a year later. So Yeah. I'm definitely seeing some struggling going on with the concept of distancing. One of the things that I'm promoting in my classes and we're promoting on our campus is the understanding of the difference between social distancing and social isolation. I'm so glad you brought this up. That's perfect. Thank you. Well, I think in our minds, it means that we can't connect. If we have to distance, then we can't connect. And honestly, sometimes just the awareness of the difference between the two almost gives people like a light bulb, like, aha, okay, you're right. I might have to distance, but I don't have to isolate. And then the question becomes, okay, so then how do you do that? How do you distance and not isolate? And the big thing that we all need to keep in mind with the concept of 
moving away from isolation, being more connected, is that it takes intention. And sometimes we get complacent and we get in our space. And I'm as guilty of this as the next person. There are times where, you know, I'll go days or I'm in my house and my husband will be like, let's just go grab some food or let's just, you know, do something. And I was like, nah, I'm good. I'm really comfortable. And then I'll complain that I haven't done anything in two days. I haven't left my house in two or three days. But I get in this place where it just feels like it's a lot of work to try to do something. That's what we have to avoid because we can get into this complacent place. And then that snowballs and it snowballs. And then two days turns into five days, turns into a week, turns into two weeks. And then all of a sudden we're like, oh my goodness, I haven't socially connected in a really long time. And that can have effects too, especially if you might tend toward social anxiety or toward even agoraphobia, where the longer you stay isolated, the more difficult it is to not isolate. Exactly. Yeah. It literally becomes like a snowball effect. And I mean, those are when we start talking about other mental health issues like that, that just makes the whole process obviously more challenging. You know, I saw a survey just this last week, and it was from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and it said that 41% of the people that they studied said that they had some sort of mental health issues that were related to the pandemic. Does that kind of line up with what you're seeing in the populations you work with? 100%. I actually just did a presentation for a conference, and I had a tape early, and I was looking at the statistics of what's happening with college students And there is some rich data out there, the National College Health Assessment, which is a really large nationwide survey that we get a large number of college students participating in, and they do it every year. So I was able to look at data from the fall of 19 to the fall of 20, and the increase in anxiety, the increase in depression, the increase in loneliness the increase in amount of stress that students are experiencing is significantly increasing. So across the board, we're seeing these negative mental health aspects just being exaggerated by isolation, by the shutdown, by fear of getting sick, and all these layers that COVID-19 brings with it. And is part of it the uncertainty of, you know, at first, when this first started, we're like, ah, give it a couple of weeks. We just got to flatten the curve. We'll be fine. You know, we were still making our plans for summer. And now making plans for summer is like, I don't even know what to tell you. You know, we can't for myself, you know, I live in Nashville and I was like so disappointed last week that they announced they were canceling the uh, country music festival again, which was like, it's such a big thing that I went to every year. And, you know, it's like, ugh, not again, come on, it's outdoors. Can't we do it? You know, you, you want to will it to happen, Great. but we don't know. We don't know how to plan our summers. We don't know how to plan our futures right now. Yeah. The uncertainty for sure. And as a person, again, who studies stress, we see that in and of itself as a huge stressor. And that actually translates across populations But I try to spin this in my teachings and with my students, because one of the things that COVID has done, and I think last time we spoke, we touched on this a little bit, is forced us to be in the moment. Mm -hmm. And the uncertainty really arises when we try to future plan or predict or look out, you know, a week, a month, two months 
to the summer. And we just don't have the capability to do that anymore. And honestly, when we give up the prediction of the future, which is really hard to do, I'm not suggesting that this is easy, but when we're able to let go of that, like we're so many people white knuckle the future. If we can loosen our grip on that a little bit and bring ourselves into the moment, we can see that we'll start to navigate our stress, the process that we go through when we're stressed in a very different way. And COVID has forced us to do that. And it makes a lot of people uncomfortable because honestly, we don't live that way. We haven't prior to COVID-19 lived our lives as a nation, I would say really globally in that aspect. We're very on the move. What's next? Where are we going tomorrow, next week? And what happens is we end up missing what happens today. Yeah. And even though today doesn't feel comfortable for a lot of people, there actually is a lot of power in being in the moment and being present and being mindful. So what about when that moment is not comfortable and it's not pleasant? How do people manage that? Because a lot of people are having unpleasant and uncomfortable moments daily. Yeah. And, you know, I wish I had a perfect answer for this. I wish I had the magic solution or the magic pill that could make everybody just, you know, in the blink of an eye, be able to deal with the uncomfortableness of our situation. And I think it goes back to intention. One, we have to work on this because if we expect these answers and these positive feelings just to automatically come to us, we're going to be waiting a long time and we're going to be very disappointed. <laughs> so we have to work at it. There is some really powerful things that we can do. I know not that long ago, you did a whole episode on gratitude. Mm-hmm. And gratitude is one of the most powerful practices that we can do, especially when we're in these moments of uncomfortableness or illness or loss or grief, if we can find the good in our life in that moment, it gives us respite. It gives us this little break, this little space from the pain, the stress, whatever it is that we're going through. And it's not going to just magically make your entire life and, you know, better, but it makes that moment feel a little less heavy. Right. Great thing about gratitude. You don't have to look for some big thing to be grateful for. It can just be, I got out of bed today and I'm grateful for that. Exactly. Exactly. And even in like the most, you know, grief ridden situations that we're in, it could be, like you said, the littlest things. It could be, wow, my friend reached out in a text to check in on me. I'm really grateful for that. It doesn't make your pain go away. And like I said, it doesn't make your stress go away. It just gives you a little space. And the more we practice it, the more space we get. And that's really, really powerful. As you know, that's like I preach gratitude all the time. So (laughs) it's such an effective tool, though, and it's one of the simplest to be able to put into practice, um, whereas mindfulness can be difficult to manage. Agreed. And I think too, like one of the things that I think we all need to consider, you know, we're talking about happiness and I know that you're constantly unpacking happiness and making connections to happiness. But one of the things that I've found is that people don't really know what happiness is. 
they think they, you know, they want it. They kind of know when they're feeling it. They're in this endless pursuit, which I think is problematic for happiness. But then you ask people like, what does it mean to be happy? Right. I talk to my classes about this and I get silence. The same thing happens with stress too. They know they're stressed. They know how it manifests and they know that it doesn't like, it feels a little uncomfortable, but they don't really know what stress is. And I see the same thing with happiness because students use this term all the time. I want to be happy. I'm seeking happiness. I'm looking for happiness. You know, what is it look like when you reduce your stress? Oh, that's happiness. And you're like, well, what is happiness? <laughs> and they really, really struggle. And so I think if we're like setting ourselves up for, I need to be happy and I'm searching for happiness in the midst of social distancing and social isolation, I think the first thing that people really need to acknowledge and to kind of grapple with is what does that mean for them? What does it mean to be happy? And what I have found, and we can give you a hundred definitions of what happiness is, but what I have found is that that's so subjective that changes kind of from person to person. And what makes me happy and how I constitute happiness in my life may look very different than how somebody else. I mean, it all comes down to these positive and pleasurable emotions, but mine might look different than yours. Right. And I think this past year, we've had to kind of redefine what our personal happiness means. I know for myself, I've found that a lot of things were distractions versus really things that made me happy. They were things that pleasantly distracted me. And now I'm not able to do those things. So I think we've started looking at it a little bit different. We've been forced to look at it a little bit differently. Agreed. But I also think that in what I'm seeing is that so many people aren't even giving themselves the time and space to negotiate that or to even renegotiate it. It's it's something that we need to sit with. I think we just expect that we should have it and that we should experience it or that we should find it. But if we don't give ourselves the opportunity to really know what it is, it becomes like a hamster in the wheel. Yeah. And if we're chasing something that we don't know what it's going to look like, we might miss it. <laughs> we exactly. might go right past it. <laughs> exactly. And that's one of the things too, I mean, the pursuit of happiness, you know, the whole movie about it and we talk about it and I hear people saying I'm in search of, and I tell people all the time to stop searching, like allow yourself, give yourself permission to experience it. It's right here. It just, we have to be open to experiencing it. We have to be open to the opportunities that'll allow us to engage in things that create happiness in our lives. So when we're on this endless pursuit, I think you hit the nail on the head. So many times we go right past the opportunities that cultivate happiness. And if we can look at this time as, as an opportunity to really cultivate some of those practices and to discover what makes us happy, we're going to be in a better position when things really open up. Yeah. And I also, so you're, this is such an interesting concept to me when we think about what it's going to look like when things open up. And, you know, I talk about resilience all the time and it's a big buzzword right now. We need to cultivate resilience. We need to be resilient. And essentially, when we think about that, that means that we come through this crisis, this adversity, this trauma we're like, you know, we bounce back, we come back to normal, we navigate our way through it. And I honestly, I don't want that for any of us, although I use the word resilient, and I think it's really important. I want everybody to transcend mm -hmm. where they were, I want us to go past 
where we were. And I think that this whole concept of navigating what it means to be happy for us is going to allow us to do that. Because I know that when you challenge people to do this, that they start to navigate their life in a different way when they have kind of this firm foundation of what's meaningful in their life, of what gives them purpose and what's worthwhile. And all of that is what's cultivating happiness. That changes people in really profound ways. It does. And it also gives us the opportunity to share that with others. Because we know this journey isn't just about finding our own happiness. It's about being able to help others who might be struggling. And so how can we do that if in this socially distanced world, how can we kind of be better about reaching out and maybe helping others where they're at on their journey? One of the best things that people can start to tap into, which also is going to cover and kind of encapsulate what you're talking about is working on discovering, paying attention to their sense of purpose. Because when we focus on the concept of purpose, we naturally pull other people in. Because part of the concept, and this gets into like the overreaching kind of component of spirituality, and that is, what does it mean to be me? And why am I here? And what's my purpose? And what kind of meaning is in my life? And we can't answer those questions without bringing other people in. And even the concept of altruism falls under this umbrella. So as we start to discover what it is to be us and what it means, and then what our actual sense of purpose is, I think that really organically encourages us to reach out to other people because you start to acknowledge the fact that you can't live out your purpose really without connecting. And that cultivates a really powerful emotion like empathy. And empathy would be a very big driver of reaching out and saying, hey, how you doing? Or can you talk? Or even reaching out when you need help. I'm feeling this way right now and I just need to process or whatever the case may be. All of that comes in this journey that we're all on really to figure out what the meaning of our life is. And what about populations that are lonely? Loneliness has, it was already an issue and we know how bad it is for us and how devastating it can be to both our physical and our mental health. And now, you know, throughout this, especially for older populations and immune compromised people, it's become a significant problem. So if someone is struggling with loneliness, it's difficult to put any of these things into practice. Yeah. I mean, you get stuck, right? When you're lonely, it's not obviously only isolating, but it can be paralyzing. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I talk about and challenge my students with is the concept of loneliness and how is that different from being socially isolated and socially distanced? And I think that when we have to peel away the layers of these emotions that we're feeling, because I think a lot of people are feeling isolated and they think that they're feeling lonely. But when you start to look at what loneliness is, which is feeling alone, unwanted, empty, as opposed to just, I'm not finding ways to connect with people, but I have plenty of people in my life who I know 
love me and want to spend time with me and fulfill me, then there's a different approach, right? So if we're talking about like true loneliness, if a person is experiencing true loneliness, that is certainly a steeper hill to climb. And again, I wish I had a magic answer to all of this, but that is where the concept of social connection comes in. And when we have people in our lives who we know are experiencing this emotion, we have to make a real effort because it's very difficult to get out of loneliness mm-hmm. on your own. And that is the phone calls or dropping a meal off or a little check-in. It's a note, it's a card, just to help people understand that they're not alone. And those simplest of actions are really powerful. But one of the, I know, hardest yet bravest thing a person can do when they're feeling lonely is ask for help. And sometimes it's easier for some people because there are a lot of people who feel lonely, have a lot of social connection in their life. So they have social networks and they have social connection, but there's also a lot of people who are lonely who don't necessarily feel like or logistically, if I can speak, logistically don't have those people in their life. So that has to be cultivated. And there's all sorts of ways that people can do that. And there's actually really interesting research that has shown, I was just reading about this maybe a week or two ago, about plants in house. This could be one step out of this paralyzed place of loneliness is to have the activity of gardening and planting and taking care of it. There's research with animals like pets and how that can help with the concept of loneliness. But that really isn't the major solution to the problem, but that's one of like the stepping stones that give people in this lonely place a little more energy and a little more motivation to now start to cultivate a broader social connection. Is that because it gives you a connection with some form of life? And is that- I don't really know the science behind all of it. That's not really my area, but I think too that when we find ways to connect in any way, shape or form, and I think that's a really good way to put it with life, there's something powerful with that. But this ties back into the concept, I think, of meaning and purpose. So if I know that there's something that, or something that needs me every day, whether that's watering my plants or pruning or, you know, digging, whatever the case may be for a garden or feeding an animal, caring for an animal, that starts to cultivate meaning and purpose. And that it's like the broaden and build theory, right? We can take Mm -hmm. those really powerful emotions and we can start to build off of them. Do you think that as we do look at coming into the new normal, as they call it, as we start, you know, we're starting to open up some and and trying to figure out where to go. Are we going to be more aware? Are people more aware of the fact that I need to watch out for my fellow human? I'm not just talking about, I don't want to infect them with a virus, but are we more aware of this person might be hurting or I need to check on this person? Do you see us becoming more empathetic that way? Well, I'm going to say, I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) I would hope so. And 
I do, but I kind of struggle with this sometimes because I also see the very individualistic nature of all of it too. And we can see how this is related to stress where we saw toilet paper and Clorox wipes flying off, right? That was a very individualistic approach to the beginning of the pandemic. But I've also seen so much cooperation and sharing behaviors too. I think that we can also look to past traumas and adversities in our history to see how maybe to provide evidence that what you're saying is exactly what's going to happen. And so as we are dealing with all this and living in this kind of in-between world right now, what are some good self-care practices to be able to not feel isolated, but to be able to maintain whatever social distancing we need to at this time? Well, I think that it depends on where you are too, how easily you could do something like this. So being in Nashville, your weather is probably much better than our weather in upstate New York. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think we can get outside even in when it's not so great out short of like our four foot snowstorm prior to Christmas, we still have an opportunity to get outside. I actually live in a place where not far from me, I have tons of opportunities for walking trails and hiking. So there's opportunities for people to connect yet still socially distance and take care of themselves. They can move their body. They can be outside in their environment they can connect with another person or persons and still be able to socially distance. So for sure, that aspect of it is always for most people an opportunity. And I think too, with the concept of self-care, one of the things we need to do is stop justifying our need for it and stop apologizing for wanting to take care of ourselves. I see way too many people foregoing self-care because they're stressed, but also foregoing it because they feel like they don't deserve it. And that is what we need to reconcile and we need to rescript. You shouldn't have to feel like you need to negotiate your self-care. So once we come to terms with, I actually deserve it. And not only do I deserve it, I know that it's going to make me more productive. It's going to help me in my job. It's going to help me in my family. It's going to help me in my life. You know, I know that we have to let you go, but as we do, what is the one thing that you hope everyone will keep in mind as they continue navigating this, not isolated, but socially distanced journey? I would say keep working at it. Keep up the effort. Keep intentionally seeking connection because the end result is the potential for positive in our outcomes just, I believe, exponentially increases the more intention we put into our connections. And our social connection is a powerful moderator of this process we go through in terms of stress. It can change how we not only navigate our stress, it can change the outcomes from our stress. That was Dr. Jennifer Wegman talking about maintaining your happiness while staying socially distant. If you'd like to learn more about Jen, her audiobook, or follow her on social media, visit us at livehappynow.com and follow the links. As Jen mentioned, gratitude plays a key role in our well-being, and there's still time to participate in the 10-day Live Happy Gratitude Challenge. 
To be part of this, just take a few minutes to express gratitude on your social media platform to a different person every day for 10 days. Each time you tag a person and explain why you're grateful for them, invite them to participate in the gratitude challenge too. Be sure to use the hashtags LiveHappy and GratitudeChallenge and include a photo or even a short video. In addition to enjoying all the benefits that gratitude brings, you can also win some great Live Happy prizes. Learn more about this at LiveHappy.com or on our Live Happy Facebook page. That is all we have time for today. We'll meet you back here again next week for an all-new episode. And until then, this is Paula Phelps reminding you to make every day a happy one. <laughs>